Welcome to season three of Ask Adelaide and Anna. I'm Adelaide Jagade. And I'm Anna Ile, and we are artists and friends. This stay-at-home season, we give advice to both individuals and art institutions. We're recording from a basement bedroom in Portland, Oregon, in the U.S. And here by a window in a studio apartment in Stavanger, West Coast, Norway. You'll hear us talking with art students. From Kunstskolen i Stavanger, artist friends in Oslo, and staff at Nationalmuseet in Oslo. Mostly recording from all of our phones. And now we'll hear from an artist friend. Yeah, my name is Hanan. I work as an artist, um, or not so much these days, but <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So we, I guess we could start with the institutional question. Yeah. Does that sound good? Okay. I mean, we sent um, you some questions and we can take those ones so we can also ask you some other things. It sort of uh, depends on the... Yeah, I see a lot of musical exhibitions taking on the possibility of self-reflection when coming to their approaches to collections and colonial awareness, how do museums relate to the fact that the museum is a manifestation of colonialist power structures, while at the same time they try to have an agency of decolonization? <sighs> what do we tell? What do we tell them? It's quite complex because, uh, as you say in your question, I mean, in a way, what you're saying is that they, of course they have to they have to discuss this topic a lot because the artists are working on this. So, you know, it's, I think it's quite interesting when this institution is being informed by, by the volume of all these artistic practices, it sort of like pushes the institutions mm. to readjust. So I think that's mostly why now it's been, um, not that nobody was working on that before in institutions and so on, but I think now we can see across the world that these questions are, more present and more visible in different uh, Western countries. I don't know if it's uh, possible to go out of this, um, of the nature of a museum. I mean, I'm not sure because the institutions are one thing and museums are another thing. And each, mm -hmm. each institution has its own history. And it's maybe a bit hard to talk about it like in general. But I, I mean, and, and, and by that, I think, I guess the question implies like or talks about art museums, but then it's a lot of the I'm thinking of all the ethnographic museums and uh, what is called now like nature and science museums and all of those um, other museums that are a little bit outside of the not outside of the discussion, but maybe for us as artists, a little bit outside of our discussion, because I think mm. those of scientists have that same, are, are working on the same thing as we speak. So it's a lot of parallel uh, movements, mm. I think. I remember when I was, uh, I was doing this project in Hamburg, maybe like four years ago. Can it be like so old? Oh my God. Anyway, it was a few years ago. I was invited in Hamburg uh, as part of this uh, artist-run uh, project called Radical Unsichtbar. And uh, that was actually, um, the space was part of an occupied district in Hamburg that is uh, quite old and has been like very active in 
yeah, in so many different uh, important struggles for society and everything, and a very interesting place. Um, and anyway, but so they invited me, um, they wanted me to kind of lead a workshop that was the concept of their program, that they would invite an artist to lead a sound workshop based on one of their work, and then you could suggest... Uh, um, collaborations or themes and what, whatever you wanted to talk about and uh, and so I wanted to because I, I um, I'm interested by um, by desert landscapes um, and um, and kind of researching on on different territories different places and uh, the reason is that uh, a lot of these places are often like a little bit outside of our map even though it's lots of the, I mean, it's deserts are like one third of the planet, but a lot of these places are not so well known. And, uh, you know, if you go there, it's always very short because of the conditions. And that means that the populations that live there or have lived, you know, that li the populations that live there are vulnerable, a little bit outside of the, you know, if something happens, we don't hear about it. Uh, the history of these places is also very often very brutal because it's also related, it's like a continual, um, it's often related to colonial history, but today it's often still linked to colonial history in the sense that these places have a tremendous amount of natural resources. Mm. So it's like a continuous uh, thing. And uh, anyway, so I'm interested by that. And I was interested in Namibia. And um, I always try to to travel uh, when I can, travel to to some of these places when I have the opportunity and stay a little bit. And and then because I know it's each, each second there is very precious, then I try to also look at different aspects so I, that can inform different of my projects. And anyway, so, uh, and then I was interested in colonial history in Namibia because it's not often talked about, and it's been a little bit more in the recent years. You probably heard about it. Uh, but it's not often talked about also because uh, when we talk, for example, about apartheid, we talk a lot about South Africa, and then Namibia is this like weird country on the side, and it's extremely uh, little populated also. And in Namibia, you have uh, several deserts, actually. Uh, and of course, they are, as all deserts, very beautiful, but that's not what uh, interests me. Um, but uh, one of the very interesting things for me is that Germany had uh, colonies there, had Namibia as a mm -hmm. colony. And it's also not so, something we talk that much about, because, of course, German history being what it is, we um, talk a, a lot about the Holocaust, which is important. And, but then what I understood is that Namibia was sort of the, uh, the guinea pig of Holocaust in a way, because what happened is that they experimented all the concepts that they developed later for, for Germany. So the concentration camps, the, it was the, the time where it was like late, like 1800s and so on, like the sort of whole, uh, you know, uh, uh, scientific racism, like, you know, measuring people's skills and so on and so forth, and moving people from north to south, like to sort of disoriented people, and of course enslavement, everything, everything you, you can think of, but especially the notion of concentration camp. That was like, for me, when I understood that, that this was the place where they were 
um, testing these ideas. And then one of the things that was very uh, brutal that I understood, and I should have known that for much longer time before, but for some reason it wasn't in my history books and maybe not in many of uh, our, you know, others' history books, but... Um, the, the the biggest uh, population there was called the Herero tribe, and the and the Germans disseminated eighty percent of that group by pushing them into the desert and and tracking them and poisoning uh, water pounds and so on and so forth. Like extremely brutal, and this is very easy to find out. And you have archives in Germany and not in Namibia so much. And so I came across lots of um, uh, monuments, you know, like war monuments that were like very cryptic, like you don't really understand what has, it has something has happened, but it doesn't say who. And, you know, it's very, very complex or very strange. And but so when I was invited in Hamburg, I thought it would be a great opportunity to sort of re kind of, um, yeah, unpack a little bit this uh, uh, what has happened, especially because. What I found out is that, as we know of, we talk a lot about today, is a lot of the skulls, uh, people's skulls had, be sent, had been sent to Europe for study, to study. And, uh, and lots of them were still in Germany. So, um, and also what was interesting is that at that time, Germany was just discussing that genocide and it had happened 100 years ago, and now they were discussing at that time. So I think it was 2016 or 2015, but at that time, Angela Merkel had made, it was like a month before or after, like that she had made a statement saying that we recognize uh, the genocide, and they were discussing returning the skulls. So it was a very, like, it, yeah, it, I was like uh, in this thinking, okay, how can we... How can we do like because you know you have the practicalities of this all of this art project you're invited for one week or you know a few days and you have this group of people that come from different places mostly Germany I assumed but like how can we like discuss that within a concept of sound art and all of these things and so I thought let's try to work with the local there was a ethnographic museum uh, in Hamburg so we go there and uh, and we had we had to contacted them before so I had sent them a list of archi- uh, books that I wanted to to use for the for the participants to look at and so on so it was very interesting because the participants were uh, most of them were Germans and some from the UK and it, it, they were like really into it and went in and recorded uh, yeah really like went into the archive and so we discussed a lot actually um, the content of all of the archive you know like you find these letters from these colonels and so on because the thing that happened is you know after they left Namibia these people got very prominent jobs in universities in Germany, and then starts the whole, you know, then it's the 20s, and, you know, then starts the whole mm. thing. So they were actually rewarded for their work, you know? So, like, this, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's very, like, it's so bizarre to think about it, but, you know, imagine, like, the level of protection. There was not hidden. It was really clear what has happened, that they had killed a lot of people, and everything was so clear, but they were rewarded for that brutality. For me, this understanding of being rewarded and 
people accessing their jobs and you know and Hamburg is a big harbor you know so it's it was like very important also at the time and you imagine like you know people coming here I mean in Hamburg with the remains re- remains bodies and things being shipped in like it's very uh, surreal to think of like the, to think of, of the practicalities of this uh, of this thing in relation to knowledge building because um because that's what the museums are, right? It's like a manifestation of knowledge. So when we go to this museum, we explore the archive and so on, and then they had an exhibition with artifacts from Africa, blah, 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 like the typical thing. And then uh, because like this group was so involved and stuff, and we had talked a lot about all of these things, and when they go into the exhibition, they go with very critical gaze, which was great. And then they confront, and then at some point, we, f- we like face to face with what they call a Herero, uh, dress and uh, you can google it after if you want but this Herero dry, dress is very German for some for some yeah. reason you know and mm-hmm. and then it just says Herero dress with the, the, the date you know like no comment and then one uh, several people actually in the group said but shouldn't you stay there because it was this artifact and then there were others from other countries and so on huh? but this one was specifically from that tribe that had been, dis- I mean, you know, disseminated, you know, from that time. And then, and then it's like this very weird moment where uh, people are like, but they ask the curator, like, shouldn't you say, shouldn't the museum say, like, what has happened? Or are you just going to leave that dress, like, an- yet another um, object that you can appreciate for its, uh, you know, aesthetics and so on? And then she said, she was very, I mean, I saw she was like, she was getting red and like, not because she was like, uh, not because she didn't think colonial history was, uh, was not important, but she was trying to justify the way uh, the museum had made their choices. And then she said, Mm -hmm. but you know, colonial history is very important, but we can't always, um, we can't always talk about that. Sometimes you have to let you have to let it be, and uh, and and to, and just you know just show the objects. And as she says that, what's very interesting that you see on her face that she understands that she, it's not possible to agree with that. You know, like when someone says yeah. it happens to all of us. You know, when you say you make try to make a smart statement, and then <laughs> you're like, as you say it, you're like <laughs> something. And then the whole group is like, ooh. You know? <laughs> it was very weird. And then she like, you know, when people just like, okay, yeah. Okay, next object is like, so she's kind of goes oh back. <laughs> but you know, it's, it's in this, it's funny because, I mean, you can read and, and, uh, and, and we can read like 20,000 books, but it's in these moments that you yeah. feel and understand like all the different frictions, right? And it's also because of this question and this, like, prote- you know, when people are like, no, this is wrong, that, that also this happens, that people realize, okay, yes, this is wrong, indeed. And then, yeah, two years later, I remember that moment and I thought, oh, I was just thinking, let's have a look at this museum, what they are, what they are up to these days. And I saw they changed the title and they are changing the profile and lots of things are happening. So, wow. so to talk about decolonization, I mean, you know, it's like... Um, well, I think for, for these kind of museums, it's more obvious because the collection is all based, it's basically like the treasures of colonial history. Like, you know, mm-hmm. the collection is very clear, you know. 
when it comes to contemporary art museums and so on, it's more complicated because uh, then you have to deconstruct uh, the role of art uh, in society. You have to uh, you have to analyze uh, where you stand. You know, it's 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 even more. I think if it, I think it's even more difficult. You know, to go to ethnographic museum and say this is racist or this is you know this is you should acknowledge colonial history. This is like almost like a. I mean, it's just strange that we still have to discuss that, of course. But. Um, but I think when it comes to decolonizing the gaze that we have, I mean, if you're an artist, you're most likely most likely have been to an art school. Not always, but it's it get, it's very likely the case, and therefore you're also like educated within certain uh, mm. certain history, and you know it's like a lot of layers that you have to. It's like a this super big onion with very very thin layers <laughs> and it's a lot of like re, you know uh, steps to remove all of those layers or to at least like acknowledge the the kind of uh, thickness of it in a way it's also, also like a teaching moment you know when you uh, when you do this and like give this uh, context and I think sort of also sort of explaining that uh, or that moment of of uh, that uh, woman speaking and then mm. realizing something. I think it's sort of that's like moments we have, like we need to work for. And maybe it's like, uh, sometimes it's like more difficult to point to things that are not as cleared or more layered, mm. but mm -hmm. even more so because it can be more hidden. If people, if institutions really want change, I mean, and I think I think it's an important question as well because sometimes I feel that people don't really want change but they want to look like they want change which is uh, yeah. kind of the worst. So my first recommendation would be like don't do that. If you don't want change, like if you don't think these questions are for you then you should be honest about it, you should say it, you, we should you should say ah, we don't care about racism. Force is not a problem. Uh, we think that the most important is to keep on the work we have done so far. We are proud of our work. I mean, it's fine but just Let's just be on, like honest, mm. you know. But the worst, I think, is like when people pretend that they are interested, and then they just have these panels once in a while. And then when you look at their employees, when you look at the exhibition, when you look at the themes of the exhibition, when you look at all the different layers, and you see it's no work. No, they haven't been working. Yeah, exactly. You know. Yeah. That I don't like. And there's also the issue of bringing in people of color to kind of like to do the work. Yeah, exactly. You know, like they're the ones who are Can you please to... help me to decolonize? No, right. you decolonize. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Someone wanted to hire me for something, and then um, they said, uh, first they thought I was a student, which is fine. I mean, but it's just that I haven't been a student for many years, so it was kind of weird that I hadn't just checked uh, something or Google or something. Yeah, they had, yeah. That's fine. And then, uh, and then they... And then I realized, yeah, they asked me, yeah, we, they didn't want, they didn't say we need help to decolonize, but they said like, uh, we really would like someone that is close to the minorities in Oslo and, um, and can, you know, bring this audience closer and all of these things. And then first I was like, it's kind of funny because I mean, I'm not Norwegian also. So the uh, assumption that I as a French Algerian citizen in Norway, would be closer to Norwegian minorities than they are, 
is very funny mm-hmm. for me. You know, like mm-hmm. in the sense that I have been here for a few years, yes, but I'm, I'm in my little art scene thing, I, my studio. Of course, I'm interested by these questions, but they don't even know that at that point. They just see mm. my name and they assume that. Because it's also this thing when, when people see you just from your co- skin color and then it's just like this, you know, patchwork of, co- of colors. And it's like, same yeah. group. <laughs> I mean, this is... <laughs> it's also a bit racist. I'm sorry. It's like, I don't like this way of, you know... And I, I mean, of course, I always... When I work and when I organize things, of course, I mean, always, I think it's important to reach out to all to all different groups and all different classes and all different things. But, you know, it's just this thing when when people that are born and raised here and obviously should have been interested in that themselves for themselves. Also, like just to be interested in where they live, ask Mm. you to kind of I don't know. I just find it like just because you the way you look or so I find it really annoying. Yeah, you're kind of asked to do twice the work. You know, you're supposed to do the work you're already doing and then the work that they should be doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's like double labor. And then I was also once in, sitting in a panel about diversity. And I, I mean, now I know I should just say no to these panels. But at the beginning, you're not really <laughs> sure. Because at the beginning, you're still thinking that it's going to help someone or la la la. Anyway, and then, uh, and then it was like, it was so funny because... Um, actually, there was this guy who was in the panel. I don't remember his name, but um, I will send you by email. He was amazing. Like, he was so great. He was, uh, uh, I think, a historian in uh, uh, in jazz or something. But, I mean, he was so articulated and so good. And he, had, he gave a presentation before the panel, and I was just like, wow. And then he was sitting in that panel with me and someone else. And, uh, and then it was... Um, it was like very little time to answer, actually, which I don't like when it comes to these issues because I feel it should be some time to 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 talk and reflect and listen to each other and stuff. And then at some point, the the moderator says, "But we should always. Uh, I mean, diversity is important, but I find, for me, I think the most important is quality, like in the art programming." And there I was like. <laughs> 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 it was so funny because I think just my face just like just like my jaw completely dropped and the, and then you know what was funny is that the worst is that uh, not the worst but the, my first thing if I mean I was shocked but there was a shock in several layers you know I was shocked from what I've heard but also I was like uh, I, I thought it was so embarrassing in front of this guy who was so great you know yeah, yeah. flown from the US and stuff and I was like shit this guy is hearing this shit he doesn't deserve that you know I was like I was like it's rude when you invite people from far away and you know they are your guests and everything and and then it's like he comes all the way to fucking Oslo to hear this shit like ser- mm-hmm. you know it's not yeah. it's not serious it's disrespectful you know because I can I can deal with it it's like my people you know <laughs> me my people I can <laughs> I can, like, handle them, you know? But with this guy, I felt like, oh, my God, I had to, like, save him from this place. But, uh, no, and then and then it's, like, this little comment, and then it's, like, okay, now we're going we're gonna to wrap up. And then I was, like, no, 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 oh. can I have the mic? And I was, like, uh, first of all, uh, you can't have uh, quality without diversity, so I think that's a very inappropriate comment. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't remember what I said now. I think I said something like, you have to stop talking about that. 
you have to completely stop talking about that, like stop, and start working. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, if you think of the amount of money that is being put in these panels and you put them together, you already see that you had great resources to do something else instead. Instead of talking and branding yourself and do all this stuff, I think, yeah. But it was a good experience just because then you see it. And I know the people that organized it, they were genuinely, inter- they were genuinely interested. So, and then they invite people uh, that they think are in- relevant. And they're like, okay, let's, let's do that, you know? And this happens mm-hmm. on stage. So it, and I remember the director of the festival was also like that. In the back of the... <laughs> so for him also, as a white guy and all of this, and the director, it was also, I think, important to see it. You know, like, these are my colleagues saying that, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So I think it, it's also... I think all of these failures, like, no, not really failures, but, you know, these this bad moments or these are also important, actually. Like, for us, I mean, for me, for example, I just feel like it's a waste of time, but... Unfortunately, I realized that uh, it seems that I'm going to have to waste a lot of my time <laughs> until things are going to be more, you know. I think that's what it means. I realize there is no way. I mean, obviously, it should be the right people that would decolonize their own thing and blah, blah, blah. But it's not going to happen unless yeah. some people, some of us, people working in that, in really genuinely interested in that, are pushing it's like this. I realize like the labor is going to be double labor. I mean, it's going to be like this. And it has been always, uh, you know, institutions and people working there and organizations and so on should see the situation from their own perspective and find the solutions themselves and be inspired. You know, if you're interested in these issues, there are lots of literature, there are lots of people, there are lots of talks, good, good panels, <laughs> stuff like yeah. that. But I think maybe what can be said is what to not do, like stuff like that, for example, or just, you know, contact someone of mm. color or just show not, um, you know, uh, show one black artist a year to look like you're being cool or this can don't. I'm like, I'm thinking one of the message I would say, don't do that. Okay. Don't do these things because it's very obvious and it can break, break someone's career as well. It can. You, you know, it's it's not a good... You, I think all artists should be respected the same way. I think if you appreciate, you have to really be interested in someone's work. You have to dig, you have to dive into the person's work, not just like, oh, here's a black person, here's an Asian, he's a gay, here's... This is bullshit. I don't, I don't like this attitude. I think it's not... Okay. I mean... And you noticed also you were commenting in the beginning, you know, like that there are museums or institutions in so many different fields that also like do some of the same work and I think it's so weird that I have the impression sometimes that people are like oh we're gonna like we are doing this as, mm-hmm. as if it's it's not all been as if someone else is not also working on it right so that people should be like better at like reaching out to their what's it called like their parallel <laughs> institutions or sort of learn from each other as well mm-hmm I mean, you see, you start to see this stretch across all kinds of fields. Like, uh, I've seen a lot of people re-examining classic children's books. Mm. They're like, look mm. at look at the characters, the way they're portrayed, and the way that the ones that are clearly like not white are, you know, even if they're animals or they're like made up creatures, are um, 
you know, what happens to them? What do they say? How do they act? What are the stereotypes that are hidden in this? What's the attitude the, the author had towards these types of people in their life, like through their other writings or things they've said? So, you know, there's, it's just like you could examine everything and we should examine everything um, yeah, and not not get tired of it. I understand also the the fatigue, of course, uh, in in some ways. Uh, I feel it also like, but it is. Uh, but what's great is that uh, the more people are into this discussion, and the more dynamic it becomes. And because when I think of fatigue, I just think of the labor. You know, like this, you that you feel like everything is on your shoulders. Like you have to discuss like comic books and films and art and history and like all the subjects all of a sudden you become this multi <laughs> multi-talented knowledgeable like you have to know everything but uh it's obviously impossible but it, the the whole what's great is that to see that uh more and more people in the field at least i'm thinking now of oslo are interested and and starting the work from their own uh space for, for, from their own place and taking different you know angles mm. and and also the work gets better as well, you know, when you have more people uh, mm-hmm. uh, surrounding and you're don't, don't, not alone all the time in these questions. Uh, I need advice on how to be taken seriously as a female critical voice within the art world. Okay, maybe we can share our different uh, uh, yeah. sort of perspectives on this. Do you, think, uh, do you think of yourselves as being taken seriously as critical voices? in the art world I mean in the situations where I've spoken out I feel like I have been taken seriously yeah I, I'm tr- yeah I'm trying to under I, I do understand the question but at the same time I I don't think I've questioned that myself so much I just sort of uh, it's almost like I haven't cared if I've been taken or if <laughs> <laughs> Like you just say what you need to say and you don't really care. You're not. Well, it's like I do care. I want people to listen when I have something to say. But at the same time, like I know some people don't listen also. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. yeah. I'm very curious with you, Hanan, because you've been like a very visible female critical voice within the art world. But do you ever have. Have you been questioning, like, am I being taken seriously? Yeah. I mean. Because it's like the question is by whom, like by male, male peers or other female peers or, you know, white women, white men. I mean, it's very complex mm. also because I feel sometimes criticality has also triggered a loss of hatred, as you mm. have seen also, Anna, but loss of hatred uh, from like more like female, white female groups. Towards uh, you. Yeah, towards me. Uh, and so it's... Um, I think sometimes it's like um, people don't mind like criticality and stuff. It's just that uh, there is still like this this dynamic of control. Like you are also, I'm authorized to be critical, but I feel like to a certain extent in a way that is it. Is it more also connected to power? Like if someone is critical, that's uh, but. But the moment you have like more influence or visibility, or I think, is it related to power? Yeah, because the thing is like uh, the artistic uh, worlds or something are pretty much revolving around the attention economy. So when when you get some attention, uh, 
you uh, for some people it appears as if you were gaining power in a way my analysis is that the general attitude in the left and in the culture field is that uh, women of color should be heard and and they are here to help us sort of but you should not be critical back you know what i mean like it's fine to criticize uh it's it's fine to first it's very good if you're a victim of course that if you talk about you know islam it's very hard that you were wearing the veils like all of these things if you uh, where tra you're traumatized all of these things i mean i'm not making like i'm not saying these are not important subjects and all of these things you know but you, i just want to kind of i'm generalizing and making it a bit more bold just to kind of give a frame in a way and then it's then it's okay but when you are uh looking back and sort of like kind of saying well we are going to i'm going to help you because you guys look like you are struggling what people see which is a majority of very very white leftist culture audience <laughs> because it's theater in norway <laughs> is that um uh, they see two brown women on stage saying, uh, we're fine. We actually like, we feel, you know, we have lots of, you know, we're, we're interested by lots of great stuff that are not here. But you guys look like you're really struggling. You actually suck a little bit, but we're going to help you. <laughs> and then that's basically like how, I mean, this, I'm making it again very bold. And then comes this old white guy who's like the absolute embodiment of the establishment like the law mm -hmm. the establishment everything 80 years old white guy from the upper class and he's like yes they are right you suck you know and that this this combination you know this that this our closest ally would be like the absolute establishment actually that's like even more hurtful you know so this triggered like something it was not i don't know if it's hate but it's really like yeah, I think it's actually more hate than anger, I would say, you know? And in, in, what, in what form did you experience the hate? Like, do people writing about you, people saying things to you? Yeah, that, that's like the basic stuff, but it's also like just the reaction of the audience, uh, people talking right. to you afterwards. Uh, I mean, during most people are like, it, it, I mean, it is a very emotional play as well, and it's a lot of things, but just this thing of mm. this, you're not, you, they're not used to that, this moment where, I'm actually teaching. I'm actually saying, look, we have this great feminist revolution in Rojava in North Syria. Maybe we should be inspired by that. You know, mm. when you're like, you're saying, I'm trying to learn feminism from you guys. You're like, there is this thing in Middle East that is so much more interesting. Maybe you guys should like have a look. You know, <laughs> that these things is not, it's not no good. <laughs> You, yeah. you know, it creates, it's, uh, it's something, I don't know how to say, but it's still, I feel like, um, yeah, these relationships are, are still like a little bit uh, governed by, by, uh, by the sort of colonial dynamic in a way, in a sense, like, mm -hmm. it's fine, you, you know, we will help you to get to be freed and all of these things and res respect your culture and all that, but we want to be at the top of that still, you right. know? Yeah, we want you to be grateful for uh, we, and us. We, and you should be very grateful. And if you're not, and yeah. I, that's what's something that really annoys people, I think, when it comes to me, that I'm absolutely like the most ungrateful person you can imagine. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't care. Yeah. I'm always thinking yeah. that, uh, and if people ask me about that, I would be like, yeah, well, you should be grateful that I'm actually spending time talking to you. <laughs> exactly. Actually. Yeah. You know? Exactly. <laughs> and I actually mean it, and that people know that, and they feel it, that I mean it. That's really horrible, you know? <laughs> it's yeah. not a joke. I'm like, no, this is not a joke. <laughs> Yeah, there's so many situations where people try to list what they've done for me, you know, when they've yeah. asked me to do something because I have something that they, you know, experience or mm. something that they want. And it's like, I mean, Anna, you know what I'm talking about. And they like, I did this, this and this. I connected you with this person and that person. It's like, you invited me for a reason. Mm. I'm not the only one getting something out of this. You're getting something from having my presence here and from having my experience and my knowledge and my connections. And so I won't let somebody, you know, that kind of like, you need to be grateful thing is really insulting. It's very um, insulting. Th- and racist. Yeah. yeah. It's very insulting. And, but that's harder to, to discuss, I feel, like all of these things. Uh, when it comes to like being taken seriously, what, to go back to the question is, um, it's kind of yes and no, kind of, in a way. Mm. Um, and, but at the same time, I have to say, I mean, through all of this hardship as well, I met so many amazing people that were actually generally interested, gen- generally supportive, not asking, mm. any, you know, like just being normal, actually, like just mm. being, you know, just being great uh, and everything. And um, I just was, uh, thought now, like, of course, we don't know who sent this, but I was thinking, like, while I was a student, I felt very differently. I think it's like to me at least like things also shifted mm. uh when I like I had like more of like a my own practice I'm doing this and I I also had uh, because criticality or doing something it's also like that I'm I'm invested in my own work I'm invested in maybe a specific field or research and that brings me like um some sort of strength you know like it's knowledge it's experience and it's like I'm like going into something in depth and uh, mm-hmm. and after a while, people realize that when they talk, like, okay, she's interested in these things. She's actually, like, done some work with this. Like, she has some sort of, like, she carries this thing with her and she can, uh, she has something to sort of contribute with. Mm. So somehow, like, uh, to, to also, like, put words to my own, um, what's it called, like, my own skills or, like, what I, what I come with. Mm. Uh, has been helpful to me personally at least to sort of have more confidence perhaps though in in I take myself seriously mm. so okay mm-hmm. maybe that's like part of the thing as well for me that I've over time take myself more seriously you know like when like mm-hmm. 15 years ago I was like I, yeah I didn't take myself as seriously yeah and I, I think a lot of that comes with age I mean it's something you hear when you're a young person yeah I was thinking the same older people <laughs> And you're like, oh, whatever. Don't yeah. want to hear this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, yeah, a lot of it does come with age. Yeah, it's true. No, but uh, for me, one, one thing that I... I mean, it's true what you say. Of course, I, I, I feel... I think confidence and being taken seriously and all of these things are really intertwined in a way. And um, But uh, one thing I uh, regret... Not regret, but I think it's um, sad, I feel, that... I feel I, I I had to sort of um, uh, toughen my character in a way in order to be more taken seriously. Like I was, because I think for lots of people that don't really know me, they think I'm this really like 
always angry person, you know, always like again, you know, criticizing and all of these things. Like, uh, but when people know me, they know it's, it's not ju- it's not just that that I can be also very cute and kind and you know cook lots of food and do all of these things. <laughs> but this I've I've known that I had to hide all of this stuff. Otherwise, then you're not taking that seriously. Mm. That you, that I had to like get more, a little bit more, not brutal or stuff like that, but more tough, more mm. yeah. And uh, I think that's a pity that you you feel like you're forced to be a little bit le- yeah less generous in a way, less you know like mm. keep things. Otherwise, people step you know. Um, so, but it's like this also. Uh, so it's just the way things are. I, th- I think one of the things for me is that when I'm really passionate or angry, um, I tend to cry. Mm. And so, like, over time, I, I do that less. But I think that was har- a hard thing because, you know, people just tend to not take you seriously if you start crying. Mm. Or you can't, or your voice is shaking, or you can't get the words out the way you want to, you know. Mm. God, that's so difficult. Yeah. I have the same problem. <laughs> it, it was so much shit, actually, the last one and a half year or something that I just became completely like insensitive almost Mm. you know like oh not completely but you know what I mean that you get your skin really really thick and you just learn how to like cope but that's not good also I feel it I feel it physically also now like that now that we have less things to do because of all this corona shit that I'm very very exhausted by all the bruises you know all the bruises that you have to that you've been taking without 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 a a sound you know but I see what you mean yeah when when you display emotional uh a, a certain emotional state that people think okay uh yeah of course yeah, yeah. but that's what I mean by taking advantage as well when you're yeah. when you appear a little bit weak or too kind all of these things it's like uh yeah. it's very strange but uh okay. thank you so much yeah thank you so great much conversation Thanks yeah. to you for the invitation. It was fun and nice and interesting to discuss. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much. And um, let's talk again soon. And now we'll hear from staff at the National Museum. And who is our guest in a very specific t-shirt today? Um. Perod Bakke, um, age 48, to be 49 really soon. I'm uh, sorry, 59. <laughs> um, I'm working at the National Museum of Art, Architecture and Design in Oslo. Uh, we're now position of a special advisor within uh, education and audiences. Uh, the last nine years, I've been um, um, director of touring exhibitions at the museum, but have stepped back for a new organization and a new leaders. And what is that T-shirt you're wearing? Well, uh, museums are not neutral. I've been working really uh, the late, the last half, six months maybe. Um, to how can we reach our goals of having a more diverse audience into the museum because the the, the audiences are like 99% white well educated uh, women above 40 or 50 even Mm -hmm. and we do not reflect the society we exist and function in Uh, 
and how and why is that mm -hmm. and might might it be might oh, this be one of the reasons that museums are not neutral yeah we th mm -hmm. we might think that it's a neutral place but uh but the narratives we do tell they do we do share might not be as as neutral as we think I think that might be a great segue into our first question. So the question is, how do we break down the intimidation that many people feel coming into a museum? It's not an inviting space to all, and part of the problem are some of the regular visitors. So how do we get visitors to be inclusive to all? How do we get visitors to be inclusive to all? Yeah, it's like a twofold question. So partly it's so that it's the museums are not inviting, like pointing at the museum, but it's also pointing at uh, the visitors creating a, a unsafe or non-welcoming place as well. Okay, but I mean, in what way does the uh, what does he or she mean? Uh, the person who asked this question wrote me to tell me about an incident at a museum in Boston where a group of students came for a field trip and multiple visitors made comments about the students and um, and it was kind of racially mot motivated too because the students were of color and the, I mean, I'm guessing from what she told me, museum uh, members who have a sense of ownership over the space didn't like this school group being there. I see, yeah. Didn't think their behavior was to the standard that they want people to be acting. Okay, I understand. Well, why, how can we deal with that? It's a difficult uh, conversation we have to start within the museum. Uh, uh, I think historically and uh, historically and traditionally museums believe that they, people walk in the museum believe that they are open to anyone. But in fact, we don't have the uh, conversation going. We don't have the terminology to speak about what kind of, of uh, narrative we are sharing. And um, museums have always been like um, places for tranquility, for, for uh, it's been a sanctuary and you're not supposed to be yourself inside a museum. You're supposed to behave in a certain way and that certain way has been really set in concrete, you know. So the, mm -hmm. our regulars are used to a certain atmosphere, a certain feeling of, um, of uh, divinity. And when people, young people, new audiences come in and break that tradition, they are offended. Mm -hmm. So... Um, we need to start we need to and we need to learn the terminology on how to start a conversation inside the museum staff a disclosure of uh, of uh, what kind of tradition we are built on mm. and and when you say like we need to have this conversation we need to like look at this how what does that look like you know like what does it look like to have that conversation well um now, if if I if we try to start the conversation now, it is really difficult because I I I do offend some people it, um, in my in in the staff among my colleagues because of uh, probably because of the words the terminology I use to explain the situation because um, uh, I think most people in the museum 
I guess, would like to think that they are colorblind. Mm. Mm. And I, I don't think that might be the right time to be colorblind if we want to change, if we want to open up to more uh, a broader diversity of audiences. We need to actually see the color because color, people of color, uh, I would say color it matters when we're talking about mm -hmm. um, uh, museum audiences. Definitely. My, my question back to you would be, what kind of terminology could I use uh, to avoid keeping uh, creating distances to my colleagues, you know? So what just using the term people of color is offensive to them? No, well, yes, because, wow. because they, they, they don't want color to mean anything. Yeah, mm. it's like in Norway is also uh, very recently, uh, like as in the last two years or something, very recent, uh, have a more public discourse on racism or the fact that there is racism. Uh, so the, the structural level of this conversation in Norway is uh, very, very, yeah, it's very low. And that's why uh, I think... Uh, I think when you ask, so how, what kind of terminology do I need to use to make my colleagues, uh, or how do I make them understand? I think it's like doomed to be like uh, some uh, bad vibes. Yeah. Yeah. Like you can't, you can't, uh, you can't avoid that bad feeling or like the bad, uh, bad stuff because people hate to be wrong. Uh, people hate to be pointed and like what you when people tell me like you're wrong like I always want to defend myself you know like I want to be right where I am I want to protect myself um, and that's uh, so it's always uncomfortable to be like hey Anna what you're what you're doing now is reproducing shitty values you know or something like that but still I have to uh, so but if people tell me over and over again I'm I have to <laughs> think about it yeah and also, you know, if you, uh, if, if they were to acknowledge that they aren't exact, they aren't colorblind, that's not possible, then that would mean that they would have to take, uh, they would have to make changes based on the fact that they have to consider people that they perhaps just were like, oh, we're just, everyone's the same, everyone's equal. Um, so when you acknowledge, you know, with terminology that there is a difference, there are differences between people and their experiences in a place. Yeah. And, you know, in terms of audience and what you show and how you present things to people, to embrace that would mean they have to change in, in so many ways. And so I could see that's probably where some of the resistance is coming from. Yes, because the, the tradition within the museum is, is really, really strong. Even people that they don't they don't want uh, a racism structure or they don't uh, they, there are no there are no racists within the museum, but we all practice racism every day mm. most mm -hmm. people do that i think in uh, any kind any kind of people do that um and to, uh, to accept and to learn to acknowledge that we actually uh, practice racism is really difficult but we need uh, we need that uh, discussion we need the conversation and we need the terminology to 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 uh, make people talk about this issue Mm. Well, something something that I uh, uh, think is crucial as well within the institution is, uh, you know, like uh, we get paid to now for like a couple of months discuss things within the museum, you know, like or we we bring up stuff 
throughout our work, for example, with this season, you know, like we can talk about questions or collect questions, but, uh, but the museum institutions need to set of money, like it has to be in structural, it has to be really long term commitments, because you can't also only put things on the individuals within the institution. So mm-hmm. I think by committing, like putting, it has, this is also about money, like money has to be spent. Uh, and not only like awareness, but to like implement uh, certain structures that makes it more possible for more people to be to be present. Because um, I think it's very difficult if 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 it's like it's not uh, one person's job to create like an anti-racist strategy for an institution. Of course, it's great if there's like a one person who works with it. Uh, um, but that's that's not a if it's a one person job, then it's definitely not like a project. Project uh, It's not a, like a project uh, position. Uh, it's, it's more like, of a permanent position. It's a permanent yeah. position. Yeah. But but where you said it takes money, but where should we put the money? Is it like within recruiting? Is that what you're saying? Um, I think there are like different ways of of putting money. I know, like the uh, for example, I mean this is not uh, this is not comparative to the to the museum per se, but it's like a cultural scene. So I know, for example, the Arts Council in England, they're they're they have a specific funding for. Uh, black and disability led uh, organizations for example but it's basically like making sure that there are money that goes to goes to uh, groups that, uh, and people that are uh, less represented because it, it's very visible and when you give power to when you spread the power you will also see how how it changes the both the audience and the content like it it <laughs> it will just dis- be more distributed mm. Yeah, quite interesting because we are. I'm currently involved in in in, in a, working out a strategy for the um, recruiting of staff to the museum, which I find a, a crucial point to actually in up ahead uh, or in the near future better represent the society we're in, because like in Oslo, uh, well, the Norway is quite a, is a rather a new country when it comes to to versatile to uh, to um, versatile cultures being uh, living here mm-hmm. and like started back in the 70s with a, a lot of, of people from Pakistan but now 40% of Oslo's population have a non-Norwegian uh, origin and oh, tw- wow. 21% more or less have origin Directly or descendants of of uh, of um, people from Africa, Asia, Turkey, South America, and the mm-hmm. museum has like is no do, do not represent that population at all. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know is not unique to Norway. <laughs> no, it's yeah. not unique. But mm-hmm. um, so we have. But but I want to say this because um, when I we have a new management, new director, a new leader, a management group at the National Museum. And I'm really, really positive towards they have a totally different approach uh, towards audiences than the uh, the old uh, management uh, at the museum. So I'm really hopeful for this um, this um, recruiting project and, and and thinking diverse when it comes to cultural origin, when it comes to gender. Um, 
and um, I think we're we're starting a, a quite good development now. Um, one thing I do um, find difficult is. Yeah. I just have to say that uh, that Pierre Odis now with a pencil and he's like taking notes and looking at stuff. So someone is prepared. I just wanted to give you credit for that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, when 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 trying to argue for a more diverse staff, uh, it's very specific about people with a multicultural or a, a multicultural background. Like people have parents. From Asia uh, or Africa or South America or Turkey, I mean outside Europe and, and the U.S. and mm-hmm. um, and I find it difficult or challenging to describe what kind of competence does that give? Because we need comp- to to have a more diverse audience. We need um, staff that are from the same position that have the competence of understanding what it's like to live with one foot in two, two different cultures. Mm-hmm. And um, how can we describe that being a multicultural person as a quality, as a competence, and write it in, the, in our ads? So mm-hmm. um, that's um, I'd like to learn more about, you know. It's, it's, it's not about melanin or, uh, you know, uh, the, the color. But mm-hmm. the fact is that gives you some competence that the rest of the staff doesn't have. Because of life experiences and perspective. Yes, yeah. exactly. And we need that, need that experience, the personal experience of being in that split position. Because mm-hmm. I, I, know, I know people in, in Oslo that's that has parents from uh, Asia or uh, South America or Turkey or, or Africa. Uh, and they're born and raised here. They're perfectly Norwegian, but still they are being asked the question, where are you really from? Mm-hmm. And we need, to f- we need to understand what that, what kind of competence and experience that gives to these persons and that this experience is valuable for the museum to have in the staff. So you want terminology that you can use in the on the um the call like the yes. what would you call it job job advertisement yes that's that right that's right yeah. Yeah. how direct can we be i've seen i can't think of exact language but i've seen this a lot for job applications in the us and a lot of interviews actually that's like a part of the interview They're, these are kind of the questions we're going to ask you and they'll say like we want to know how you encourage diversity in the workplace um, experience of you, you've had with diverse audiences and people from different backgrounds and socioeconomic backgrounds, yeah. um, cultural backgrounds. So I have seen that a lot lately. Um, so do you see those questions in the ad? So like they'll have questions in the ad? Yeah, there's or, a way. Yeah. It's not questions in the ad, but there's a way of phrasing where you know that that's going to be, that's a, a priority to them. Like that's mm. of importance to them. And even not necessarily that the person they they want to hire is a person of color, but that if they're going to hire a white person, they they need to be on the same page about addressing, like, what have you done? You know, this shouldn't be new to you. Um, mm. So they're looking for people who have, like, for instance, I'm, th- I'm talking mostly about, like, teaching jobs. Like, how have you incorporated this into your, um, you know, in your teaching? What does it mean to be an art teacher? Like, how does, what does that look like when you say that, yes, I've, you know, included a variety of voices in, in what I teach. Like, what what exactly is that? Mm. I don't know exactly how to phrase it for 
you know, when you're looking for people to hire, but, but definitely it should be part of the interview process and it should be clear from the person's CV, like you said, Mm. not just that they're a person of color, but that they have the, the experience and the skills to bridge that gap between, and I'm sure there's lots of people. I mean, I doubt there's Mm. a lack. And they, and they, they, I've tried to, we've tried to define that, that kind of, uh, competence that uh, people of color in the Norwegian or in Oslo society have by using words like uh, different networks, different perspectives, and different language skills. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sounds like a good start. So it's a, it's a way of saying people of color without well, saying color. But ca- can we say, like, I don't know um, if you know the, the the Oslo scene, Adelaide, or the Norwegian scene, but, um, we no. cannot use like work. We cannot use words like like white supremacy. We can use like white privileges. Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> because the situation is a bit different from from the U.S. I guess. What do you think, Anna? Am I? No, but there is something about like um, using words that are like in sync with the, like the general movements. So that, um, but at the same time, like. Uh, I think with job ads, it's, uh, of course, there's also like sort of, I, I don't know, like sort of the legality, because I know I'm sure there are like legal things you can say and not say. But uh, um, but what I what I think is kind of efficient, if I want to not recruit, but I want spe- people with a specific competence, for example, using the word famine, like, okay, this is not, uh, this is not about museums, I'm just going to do something very personal. So... If on Tinder and I write feminist, that I'm feminist, you know, lots of people will not like me, you know? So sometimes it can be very good to be very explicit, you know, mm-hmm. like what values do we want? And uh, if the museum would be stronger in like addressing specific values, you will mm-hmm. automatically be uh, less interesting for a certain group of people, you know? Yeah. So sometimes it can be also by being even more explicit with, uh, with certain values. Um, of course, you're also pushing some people away, but uh, that's is fine. It, yeah, <laughs> but that's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, that's true. Values. Well, that's a good. Uh, that's a good. Uh, that's a good answer to. I'll, I'll note it down. Values. Yeah, because if it's if that's in the job description, that's very clear. You know, at the National Museum, we value, and then you state. If it rubs somebody the wrong way, like you said, you know, yeah. just using the term person of color with a colleague rubs them the wrong way, then they're not the yeah. right person for the job. Yeah. Or saying that it's important that uh, that the person who applies shares like the anti-racist feminism values of our of our educational department or whatever, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, to be very specific. So if also a, a, a white person uh, is applying, it's also will be like, OK, how do I practice anti-racism in my work it still sort of confronts the the applicant yeah. but yeah and but then again i'm not uh, yeah because it's a national museum of course i also do know that i don't know what kind of things uh one can write mm. but it would let's say it's in within like an educational department even more so it's uh, can't the organization have explicit anti-racist values mm-hmm. yeah but I mean, most people applicants for any position at the museum in, in, in Norway would have those values. But I don't think uh, everyone will subscribe to it. If, if for example, uh, if, if for, uh, so let's say, uh, 
as a white person and I read like some some someone must have like a competence or like we're working specifically with like uh, 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 decolonizing something something then I'd be then I'd be like okay actually I'm not equipped I don't I don't know enough history for example like I'm not gonna apply for this because I don't have the skills but maybe it's also because maybe a man would because men are just like apply for everything anyways <laughs> but <laughs> but I think by like being very specific in sort of the values and the competence you will automatically see a different pool of applicants yeah mm-hmm. might be right might well, be right I don't know what do you what do you say to this when I'm applying for jobs and I see that I'm I get excited you know like when the job says these are our values I'm like okay I'm like a good candidate for this because I have a lot to say on this like I have a lot of experience um, with institutions that say they have certain values and they don't. And so during my interview, I can challenge them. Like, how do you, like, for instance, I had a, maybe it was like um, 12 years ago, I had a job interview at an art, art school just to work in the admissions office. And it got to the part of the interview where they're asking, do you have any questions for us? And I said, what steps have you taken for your school to become more diverse? Because Portland is, I was living here then, um, too. And it's, for the U.S., it's not as diverse as a lot of other cities, and that a lot of that comes from history and exclusionary laws. Um, but uh, so I ask, like, how are you? What are you? What are you doing to work towards reflecting the diversity of this country? And the response, which I don't think they would have now, was, "Oh, we resp- we represent the diversity of Portland." Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And so I knew that was somewhere, like, I didn't get the job. They probably really didn't like that question. Um, but it also told me that, that I would probably be a token at that institution. Mm. And I didn't want to no. work with them. That's also a, um, a challenge. People, the few ones with uh, some versatile background will be tokens within, will easily yeah. be tokens within the organization. So we That's really it. have to have an amount. So we have to recruit yeah. a really... Uh, broad with values and different perspectives and networks and languages actually i think that's really important that you that it's like for example in the in like let's say a board like a small group of people if you like just have sort of like one like minority represent or something like that uh yeah it's it's so important to have like other people to back you uh whether Mm -hmm. it's like people from similar backgrounds or or people that have some shared experiences but of course, it's also more dangerous to have more people, you know, and giving out power. It's about like sharing power. And but that that's when real change happens. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Because one of the things I I believe challenges my colleagues sometimes when I when I speak about uh, more versatile staff is the fact that uh, the, the, uh, the, the competence that lies in personal experiences stands in like competition with like the t- traditional competences wanted in a museum like uh, museology studies art history you should have practiced it's all those those values those competences connected to education mm-hmm. are really yeah. really strong and unions uh, in Norway are strong and at the museum is strong and they always speak up for we our applicants have to have uh, masters in art history they have to have uh, lots of years of practice in museums they have to have you know um, phds more or less so when when i come with with competence that's not related to that educational side 
but actual life experience from society that connects us better to the new audiences. It is mm -hmm. a challenge. Mm. It's, it's breaking up the tradition of what kind of competence is in a museum. Yeah, those things have to be challenged in order to have change. And yeah. there's layers, layers of exclusion within that, like all through education that are mm. obstacles. And someone has to like get past all those things and then also be, you know, competing against everyone else who's yeah. applying who had more advantages. Yes. Um, I mean, I, um, I'm, I'm a part of the board of uh, the Norwegian Artists Union and Bekoa. Okay. And and I have been also trying to look at uh, look at like uh, our field, the, like contemporary artists in Norway, uh, with these issues. And as as you both point out, it's like the the uh, exclusion. It happens so early as well, you know. Like, but uh, you, you can't. But because people are excluded from higher education, for example, or or different types of education, it it becomes very problematic um to to say oh but we had no responsibility because people have to have this degree that's or, right mm -hmm. we we still need to challenge it on all levels and so not just put the responsibility like uh, on the educational system for example exactly right uh, we need to sort of work on on all these levels mm. Mm -hmm. and that's that's really one important uh, issue uh, staff recruiting but another mm -hmm. another uh, challenge is also that even even museum education as it is now needs to focus on dismantling the ways racism uh, is being told is being taught without within museum what well, what do you mean now you mean like the uh, with uh, the education within the museum towards towards our audiences how we conduct our uh, mediation of our oh. collections you know we we need oh. uh, we need to recognize and discuss how our museum is built upon historical foundations rooted in white privileges and i mean how, how museums are uh, are created and how they collect how they exhibit how we teach about objects in our collections these mm -hmm. these are we need to talk about that because it's it is quite a white privilege um, colonial tradition Mm -hmm. And that discussion doesn't exist. Well, then even more so, like with uh, when you when recruiting, when you know, like these are the things, like what is interesting to talk about in the museum right now. What are the what are our burning issues? Yes. Well, that's like a competence that's uh, that's lacking. Yes. And that's why, like, uh, art history is not bad, <laughs> but but it's not enough. Uh, mm -hmm. or or the the white art history is not enough. Yes. When I was in graduate school, I took a contemporary art class with uh, Dr. Isla Sharon, and the way she taught art history was it wasn't uh, chronological and these are the movements and you know it was like uh, it was very global. She talked about art in a variety of different ways. So there was there was some stuff you know that you would traditionally get in a, like when it's considered the beginning of contemporary art, what's the difference between contemporary and modern. But then she also um, would talk about art fairs. Um, she would dedicate like a week to different parts of the world where I'd never, I never learned anything about artists from those parts of the world and go pretty in depth. And she would give us readings from all different types of people, scholars from all around the world. And so it was at the same time I was taking another 
graduate seminar and it was like more of a traditional art history class and it was so boring and I felt like there was no place for me in it it was mostly teaching about white men you know what you see in a museum in general Mm. but like museums are changing um so the contrast was so big between the two classes at the same time and in the way that she taught I felt like there was a place for me in art history and the other I was just like I'm learning about people who I'm supposed to think are great and important um but the way she taught like she didn't it was more like she would say a little bit and then ask us what do you think? And there were a lot of heated discussions where we were like, I hate this artwork. This artist is racist. Um, so, you know, she didn't give us answers or tell us how to think, but then she allowed us to have our own voice within. Um, it was kind of like a back and forth where we were allowed to form our own opinion. Um, mm. And there are, I mean, there are professors who uh, teach other subjects, but they, they teach about visual culture. And so it's another like approach to learning about our history within the context of uh, video. Like we even watched um, music videos and read comic books and just things, different types of representation. Um, so there's a lot of different approaches mm. where I think we have to not care so much what our predecessors thought was important because there's so much you miss out on if you just pick up a classic art history book. Here, here. That's right. So, I mean, there there are a lot of people doing that kind of work, and I think it would be important for the museum to invite people who have, you know, been studying this their whole life, um, studying outside of the white art history canon. And also another method is to have local artists of color come in and do programming at the museum and pay them well mm-hmm. and have teenagers involved and have them feel from a young age that the museum is a place for them and that they have some kind of uh, agency to like decide what sh- is shown there. Mm. Like uh, at the Contemporary Art Museum in St. Louis, they have a teen museum studies program and teens are uh, paid to be part of it and they get to curate an exhibition and choose a local artist, you know, local artists like uh, respond to an open call and they choose who they want to show and they, you know, they have, control over the exhibition and there's an opening that's at the same time as the other openings and Mm. so you know if you start from a young age feeling like a museum is somewhere where you can have a voice then it's going to make a difference in the future and you know some of those students will go on to study art history and make change within those programs that's right things will change over time and that in that schools are really important collaborative units you know uh, we we can start young Mm. age collaborating with schools around the museum we uh, we've been discussing a residency program for for school classes. They move definitely in, they move the whole class and teachers into the museum and have their mm-hmm. like, like like full day schedule and um, uh, and gymnastics and history and mathematics classes at the museum for for weeks or months, and then try to create uh, a relationship between those young people and the museum. Oh, that sounds like so much fun. Yeah, it was. Uh, I know. Inspired by the as a British uh, project a couple of years ago called My Primary School is at the Museum, where they tried to solve the uh, actual um, lack of space for schools and the primary schools and, uh, and, uh, ch- um, and uh, kindergarten. They moved into local museums for a few weeks. There was quite a few challenges, but, but the outcome was fantastic, you know. Yeah. So we're discussing that with uh, with uh, the management too. So at the museum to have school classes moving in, 
living there more or less you know their full the full curriculum at the museum for a month or two to create that mm -hmm. that relationship to the young people that they can they can let art color the education and their daily uh, daily uh, um, experiences and then find art as a possible uh, way of edu mm. to educate so that's that's quite cool there's a place in Portland where I currently have an exhibition that, of course, is closed due to the virus. Um, but it's the opposite of what you say. You know how you're talking about a program of bringing students inside the museum? It brings a museum to the students. So it's a contemporary art museum at an elementary school. And the artwork is hung like at children height. And there are children, children that are curators. And there's like an opening during school hours. And the lecture is catered towards children okay um the artist lecture that i gave so i think that that also is exciting because that's from a very young age you know from like mm. kindergarten to age 11. i agree because yeah. that kind of outreach is really important as well because some people will never go to the to the actual museum building so we have to no. be out there too but uh, but uh, moving or having classes in the museum, I think, um, yeah, it sounds super efficient. Um, but should we should we move on to another question? Yeah, we can ask this long question that we've uh, been avoiding. <laughs> okay. Okay, so this question was kind of asked during our last season, but we didn't get around to answering it, and it wasn't as well explained, but I think it's the same person. So the... The submission is more and more artists go to exhibitions and share that as Instagram stories, tagging the artist or geotagging the gallery, museum, etc. What is the real function of this? There are theories circulating at the moment that photography and videos have stopped being something that should be archived. Instead, it has become consumption, which makes this type of content only important for the now and not for the tomorrow. I often question myself in the intention when I share these types of stories that don't get archived. Who are they really for? Me or my followers, friends, and colleagues? Is it about personal capital and status? How is this affecting the actual artworks and exhibition? Are artworks and exhibitions now being produced on the basis of documentative consumption and online sharing? Yeah, a long question. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the the um, the communication and social media uh, section at the art at the National Museum is constantly growing. Mm. as a fact of, of uh, that situation you described there the question I don't I don't I don't personally experience that this that exhibitions and programming are based on achieving big Instagram uh, likes or anything like that but the museum acknowledges that we reach a lot of people with art mm -hmm. although it's digital uh, pictures uh, that that would not come to the museum in the first hand, you know, and then because of the uh, the the, uh, the impact of Instagram, we might be a part of people's conscious, you know, the art might might become part of people's total picture world, you know, it's it's not mm. really it's not really important is for for some people it's not really important that they have to see the the uh, the actual artwork, uh, a picture of it might be sufficient for some people and um, mm. and learning that these pictures these artworks exist is also mm. a value for the museum mm. because we're not we're, we're also it's not important that they have to come to the museum it's important that they see the picture in some fashion 
mm-hmm. for some people. And that's probably uh, one reason that the art museum is going uh, really uh, hard on into social medias and Instagram and the share and Facebook, you know, um, because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a layer, another layer on our work. Yeah. But I don't mm-hmm. experience so far that this has really impact on what kind of programming we're doing. Mm. I, I I have a feeling that this is uh, not what the person is uh, questioning, but I, I w- really want to address it as a person not living in the capital. That uh, social media and sort of the internet presence of museum and artworks are really crucial to people outside the center you know like yeah. it's it's available and it's accessible it's free it's like it gives me access to to like what's what's going on uh, mm-hmm. which is a it's which is a really good thing yeah that's uh, true and also to sort of feel somehow a part of a conversation even though i'm not present mm-hmm. even before social media there were so many works of art that i felt like i had seen in person and then someday I see them and I'm like, I have ne- I've actually never seen Starry Night before right now because you realize yeah. it's smaller than you thought or, or bigger than you thought or, you know, like the images had uh, poor lighting in your history yeah. book. And it actually looks better on Instagram than in, uh, in the Stedelijke, you know, <laughs> in the Van Gogh Museum. <laughs> I think the core of this question is about, um, like, why have all these uh, tagging and locating and all this stuff sharing on the stories and I I think for me personally when I share artwork on social media it's usually my friends and I'm I'm basically like promoting my friends and most of my friends don't live in big cities and they're not gonna have their exhibition written about in art in America um or you know get a lot of attention and it might be just some small artist run space Mm. but it's nice to promote your friends especially when you believe in their work and what they do and you think they're you know smart and interesting and creative Mm. yeah it's kind of a uh, a new layer of of uh, of media it's really i know young people that works within the fashion industry as just startups uh, and they instagram is really really important Mm. motivation uh, factor and sharing and being uh, inspired by other people constantly uh, it's a lot of inspiration going mm-hmm. on through those social medias which i find really important you know mm-hmm. and i'm also thinking just like uh the way when growing up there was like a couple of books at home that i was just like obsessing with or like i found like a couple of images that i really really liked as a kid you know and and now when it's possible to share, it's still, yeah, it's also sort of a, some kind of accessibility or sharing or it can be hopefully easier to access. Yeah. And, uh, and we, I, I learned that there are really, really many ways of approaching an, art, uh, uh, an artwork. You know, Ooh. the way I was taught when I was in the art academy um, or reading art history, which I have uh, no degrees in art history. I'm an artist. But many I've learned through my museum work that there are many approaches to art. You don't have to stand in front of it and let its majesty wash over you. <laughs> you can uh, you can have it on Instagram. You can have it in your in the back of your head as a small picture. You can have seen it just passing by. It's many ways that art can have impact on you. You don't have to be there in person in front of it. You know. Mm. So yeah, um, yeah. that's I, I find social media and sharing really really 
to the core of what art is about. It's about, for me, it's about sharpening my my um, humanistic impulse. Mm -hmm. And I can do that in many fashions, on many levels, on many platforms, you know. It's a, it's a it's a way of sharpening your thoughts, reflecting. Art, I mean, art pieces are really sharpening my humanistic tools. Mm -hmm. I'm not on Instagram myself, but my daughters are, you know, and uh, um, I find it really inspiring. Wow! Well, thank you so much for a great, great conversation. Yeah, thank you. I, I just heard I, I went through some of your earlier podcasts, and I heard a few of them, and I I, I also heard my my colleagues Gair and and uh, Lisa from the opening exhibition. Oh yeah, and uh, I'm as, I'm 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 really really, their exhibition is going to be, it's a revolution in Norway. Wow, the way they work, their the structure of the project of the project group and their uh, their uh, attitude towards, towards uh, their um, you know, the world around us is it's 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 uh, conducting a new approach to, the art museum. I'm so proud of them. And now we'll hear from an art student. My name is Galia Tatarkina. Uh, uh, right now I'm studying art. I would like to be an artist. I like graphics a lot. So printmaking, that's really the dream. But I do double painting and drawing. And also dance is a side hobby that I have. So I could... I could, if the possibility came, really think uh, I, I would love to work with plants as well. But I work at Mini. <laughs> it's uh, a grocery. So, yeah. I, I think everyone's realizing just how important grocery store workers are. Yeah, really. Okay, you have to tell us a little bit about how it is right now. Because it's like a, it seems like the craziest job at the moment. The first week, it was quite crazy because literally everyone came in like... You would think that people didn't come in as much the first week of like when they said to oh, be inside. But people, I would say, came in twice as much and also bought twice as much stuff. Mm -hmm. The second week, it kind of slowed down. But like after that little chaos, now we have like empty, empty storages in the store. But then we're kind of dependent on that nobody gets sick because... Mm -hmm. you know, some people that are in quarantines because they've been in contact with or they've been outside of Norway. So mm -hmm. when a person gets permitted for two weeks, that's kind of a big deal, right? Yeah. yeah. We're missing a, per a person. So it's now I feel like, like today, for instance, I don't feel like people come less to the store. They come the same amount, but they mm -hmm. kind of are really, really nice to us. And that's mm -hmm. free, you know? Oh. That's great. Um, yeah, they're nicer. Like it's it's not chaos. Like there are a lot of cues and there is a lot of people, but like everyone's smiling. Some people are stressed, but I feel like those we have like a self registry, so you mm -hmm. can self. And I think yeah. that's a good thing to have in stores in, with like in this time, because that mm -hmm. makes like you don't need to really interact with anyone, and a yeah. lot of people do that. But we got like the plexiglasses today. Oh, oh yeah, in front of your. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that should just be permanent. <laughs>
I worked in a cinema and I was so glad for the glass between me and the people because at the end of the day I'd clean the glass and there's so much spit on it. <laughs> it's disgusting. And that would have been on my face. Okay. <laughs> you laughed about it all day. Like it feels so stupid to have like a huge window. Yeah, barricade between you. Yeah. But okay. Good point. And also you see so much of like the fear. As I said, mm. like in, in people's faces and people kind of avoiding each other. And but at the grocery store, I don't really feel like like people are more friendly, friendlier toward us, and also they mm -hmm. do keep distance. But really, there's yeah. not like people go around and smile and they yeah. Yeah, I think generally, also just like when I've been walking outside, like to get stuff, that people are smiling more. I was just yeah, telling Adler earlier as well that it's window. like not that normal to be so much so like smiling that much in Norway, but <laughs> I think people are smiling more than usually. I think we're over it, or not like over it, but we're over the being scared, really scared and like hysterical about it. So it's better to spread spread the happiness and joy. Yeah. So um, thanks for, for offering to give some advice. We have some questions we'd like to ask. Maybe we can ask you a personal question first. <laughs> so the, uh, this is a question that we keep getting in different forms, but it is. I keep falling in love with other people. How can I live well with this situation while still in a relationship? Oh, shit. <laughs> um, oh, that's a good one. Like, um, that's kind of hard, I think, because um, I've been in a relationship myself for seven years now. Um, and like for us, We've had multiple times where we've kind of dabbled in flirting with other people. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so me, that's kind of been the outlet that I've kind of needed. Mm -hmm. But really, that's a hard one because if you really fall in love with someone, I haven't done that. Mm -hmm. So but really to do that, I feel like uh, maybe not continue <laughs> to be in a relationship. But that's maybe harsh. But what's the what? What do you say? Like when it's it's flirting, that's more like a a feel good thing, or and then it's like a or what? What do you what do you what's the difference between the two things? Like uh, I feel like that's it's hard because you kind of have to. I feel you have to have a really trusting relationship with your other partner, and like. For us, we are too jealous to open our relationship. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's really depending on people, right? And so for me, I wouldn't like him to do anything with anyone else. Mm -hmm. So that's not for me to kind of not want to do that, if that makes sense. Like, um, yeah, yeah. you know, and yeah. so when we mutually do anything, so flirt uh, that or maybe make out with someone at a party or, you know, you know, it kind of erases the jealousy, but I would think that when you kind of, when it's one-sided, that would be a lot harder. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, but as I say, for me, I would be really mad jealous if he, like, I, if my boyfriend did anything with anyone else. Or fell in love with someone else. Yeah, right, so, so it kind of, I think, depends on, like your personality type 
as well as but I if I actually fell in love with started feeling something and I would really be honest with him about it mm. because I think mm. it would be harder for me to be in the relationship further mm-hmm. yeah that. so I think that's actually as I said in uh, in the beginning maybe get out of that relationship and reevaluate. And when, how long of a window do you think, because say for instance you felt like, oh, I'm falling in love with someone, um, how long would you give yourself, do you think, before you, you to see if it was just an infatuation that faded away, or if it was something worth uh, ending your relationship for? Because that's hard too, right? Uh, I don't know, shit. That's, because you could think about someone 24-7 for like, say a week, right mm-hmm. that's but then you could also think about someone over say a year and mm-hmm. multiple times so it kind of really I would say depend on how how deep feelings you start to feel for the other person or how yeah. thoughts you're thinking about them I would mm-hmm. say it's like yeah because that's hard to answer how how long time yeah. how I'm actually, it you probably wouldn't be a day, you know, like, oh, it's over. <laughs> so, um... <laughs> but I've been really, that's like my biggest fear, actually, like, is to like fall deeply in love with someone else because I'm in a relationship now and like, it's, yeah, I'm, it's like, it's, it's what I want, but I'm also, mm-hmm. I'm also, I'm also, also Christian and I've always been really afraid that I would wake up one day and not believe in God. I think those are like my two personal biggest fears Mm. and I think they're like a little bit the same in a way Uh, I think it's about like how like I put so much trust in like my my faith but also like I put faith like in and sort of value to my relationship I don't know maybe I'm like saying this to like comfort myself but like I'm still 35 five and I still pray <laughs> <laughs> but my relationship is not that long but uh I'm afraid of losing both like because it's still even though it's like a choice and like is connected to stuff I do it's still a feeling you know I think I think that's why I'm a like I'm afraid of losing it more than I'm afraid of falling in love with other people like or it's like I'm mm-hmm. afraid of like not having what I have mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like not being in the relationship you're in with the same kind of feelings yeah. that you have now. Yeah. Like what if it, because I, cause I, I think I know, especially with this like religious thing, even though it's like different, but, but I know like the moment I would wake up and not feel it anymore, it would be gone, you know? Like then I would know like, okay, I'm, I'm not a Christian anymore. Like I, I don't pray anymore. Yeah. I can't do it anymore. And I think it's like mm-hmm. somehow that's why I have been afraid, like this like, uh, other people or just like waking up one day and just feeling oh shit that thing is gone it's like that thought scares me a lot but that was a really good analogy i would say like wow because <laughs> really that's yeah yeah because when it comes down to it that's what a relate keeps a relationship together faith right that you yeah you trust each other that you love each other that you want to be together mm. Of course, it's all also this like yeah you you have to spend time with each other and like sort of practice some sort of like uh, care and love and all that stuff, but it's still very much sort of bound together by this. It's not a, it's more than a feeling, but it's 
it's still a feeling or this faith yeah yeah because yeah the faith of course but really it is down to as as you said like the the faith and in in whether like you'll make it as a couple right if we can say it like that and yeah i think you you would know right mm. if if you're really in love with someone else you should probably not be in a relationship with a <laughs> <laughs> also what what if the other person i mean what if this is just totally one-sided you're in love with someone else they have no interest in you and you're in a relationship you know there's no possibility of being with that person do you still oh yeah yeah is it st- still the same situation or is it different shit i i think well, I, w- I would want to return to to the analogy you just uh, anna you just said because it kind of comes down to how much because you still have to be with the person you're in a relationship with right mm-hmm. and i would think that being really being in love with someone else would affect it mm. yeah i think but i'm uh, right yeah so even though, though that person isn't but in the end of the day you'll not be happy in the relationship right mm. but i don't know that's a so hard because then you have to leave something you know yeah. well i i must say like earlier in my life because i've been in a few relationships because i just uh, don't like to be alone um <laughs> but uh pre- several of my previous relationships has actually been like I've actually known they weren't um I've known they had like a time stamp mm-hmm. you know I'd be like I'm this is fine but then I also think I don't know if this was formulated to myself at the time but I also hadn't like I was also like really wondering like is this what people are in relationships for because like it's fine but i like i i just don't i just don't dig it like it's not like i i hope there is more and it's like now i feel i've found what it can be and that's good mm-hmm. but bef- but before then like i it really depends on like what is this relationship you're still in like now if i would see if if this was me like i don't i won't refer to which of my previous relationships but but if i would see myself for like another part in life i would definitely be like um move on anna <laughs> <laughs> yeah <clears throat> okay now i can read an um, artist question um i was asked to sell my work in a not very happening gallery slash store in a little town in norway i didn't know them from before and i think it is cute that they found me or do i i also want little places like that to exist in the world i just don't want to have my work associated with it how do i tell them no thanks without hurting anyone's feelings Well, yeah, I would say you could just say no, because any any business proposal isn't you're not obligated to say yes to it, right? And mm-hmm. as long as you're right about the no, you shouldn't hurt anyone's feelings. Hopefully, you're talking yeah, like we... a true business person. That's kind of nice, actually. <laughs> of course, yeah. I was saying before when we talked about this that the the answer is in the question. You know, you just say no thanks. 
And in the end, somebody somebody's feelings might get hurt. You know, they might want to know why, uh, and then you might have to in you might maybe plan ahead. So in the moment, you're not like, because I don't like your programming or whatever. <laughs> but maybe it's also like one of these questions. You know, when people, uh, when you have a question, and you, as you say, oddly, like the the answer is already in the question, but at the same time, they're asking the question just to have someone like you Galia being like oh, it's a business of course you can say no you know like we just have someone else can like I don't know just like yeah go ahead and say no thank you because it can totally happen the other way where you approach a space and say you'd love to show your work there or something and they're like no we don't think it's a good fit and that's just how it is sometimes. and actually as an artist like we're so used to rejections it's like yeah every, another day another rejection you know like mm -hmm. so to be able to like spread that rejection a little bit might... <laughs> <laughs> and also it's nice to be in a position where you feel like you can say no to things yeah I, I have panicky moments where I say yes to things that I probably shouldn't like I've you know when I turned 35 I some couple years ago um I said like no more I'm not working for free anymore I'm not doing anything for free but then I have moments where people are like you want to show in our space and I'm like sure and then it's like uh what's you know and they're like we don't have any money and I'm like oh do I do this you know and so mm. I have to, it's but it's nice to be in a position where you can just be like oh what's your budget and they're like nothing and then you're like no I can't no thanks mm. you know? and then it's very understandable because like it's not your problem like they didn't they're the ones who didn't uh, seek out funding or do whatever mm. they needed to do to be able to pay their artists right. be happy to be in a position to be able to say you know feel like you can say no and be okay with it because mm. there's nothing wrong with it like yeah so um i think this this is a great question because so there's so many different types of answers depending on how you work and what kind of person you are Um, so the question is, how do you set up your work days? How do you keep your self-discipline when working on your art by yourself? So like outside of school, how do you, or even inside, you know, even within your assignments, how do you schedule your time and how do you make sure that you're, uh, doing what you need to do, what you feel you need to do? Like in school, uh, uh, I feel like it is a lot easier to set up a, a routine around uh, whatever subject you have. And also the art school I'm at in, in Stavanger, it's uh, quite free in the form of you get an assignment and you can kind of solve it the way you want. And mm. uh, so, but you get to, you need to come to school, right? So you kind of have first uh, first half and second half. So around that, I feel like most of the subjects that we do, I usually do have a clue of what I want to do. Mm -hmm. So... Um, Really, it's just working, consistently working. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's at school. I really feel like I need to have a workspace where I go to, like, at specific times. So, as I say, school for me helps a lot. But now, for instance, we had weeks with uh, uh, self-work at home. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot uh, more hard to keep together in the way of... Uh, I get a lot more distracted, right? Mm -hmm. I, instead of doing the assignment or maybe like I did, uh, we have a, a, an assignment that we didn't need to do, but also I have a lot of supplies that I took with for printing, mm -hmm. printmaking. But have I done like any <laughs> of the printmaking I wanted to do? 
<laughs> no, <laughs> the assignment is done, but all right, the the art that I really wanted to do and have oh. ready when school eventually begins, I haven't really started. I've yeah. watched <laughs> instead. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, really hard because like I feel like the it would be to have a workspace and also have type where you need to work with it mm. uh, and that workspace should not be at home I feel like but in a way this um this corona time COVID-19 time is giving you a taste of uh, a small dose of you know what is it what's it going to be like after you leave school yeah to how to how to manage your time because you're working too so working making art like how do you balance those two things and 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 stay disciplined and motivated so it's a it's an education in itself <laughs> it is. and really as you say like that's what i've been thinking as well like oh how holy like really it's it's uh all fun and games till you kind of understand that this isn't a vacation <laughs> right yeah you should use the time um but I think like it's it's really routine and also discipline around like when when you start to work and kind of try to do anything at home. It's so much easier to do anything else. But at school, you're kind of stuck at the desk. But that's mm -hmm. the answer, like be stuck at the desk, try to do something. Yeah. But you would do at school, but at home. Yeah. But that's easier said than done. I will Definitely. Uh, I think this like working from home thing is difficult and maybe also because I I just really really love sleeping and um, <laughs> not, not, I don't like sleeping late but like always during the day I'm like I could go just have a little nap and now I'm like sitting <laughs> it's like two meters from my bed you know very often I'm like well maybe I just need a little rest you know like I just <laughs> I just don't like to be so close to my bed there's already enough distractions, I think, with um, just having the internet, you know, even when I'm, when I do have a studio that I go to, the internet is, you could be like, I'm going to take a break, because a lot of the work I do, like, hurts my body, hurts my knees, or hurts my back, and so I'm like, I'm going to take a break, and then you're just, like, on your phone, I don't know, but I think it helps to be in the, in the space, too, because even if you do that, then when you stop doing that, you can jump right back into mm. whatever you were doing before. But uh, I think right now, I, a lot of people are learning about adaptability, like how to adapt when you don't have, you know, for instance, like you said, you like printmaking, you don't have a press, right? At all. Yeah. So, but you can still do printmaking without a press. And so like, yeah, we just have to figure out what we can mm. do. Um, I guess now a big percentage of artists are experiencing exhibitions online through photo and video. How can we engage people in a more and more technology-driven art world. So is this from, is this a museum or someone in an institution who are, who's asking probably? Or Yeah, but you can, you can think of it any way you want, like, uh, since that's something you're gonna have to think about, you know, like, how are you gonna show your work now that it's potentially, you know, only online only for the next few months, if not longer? I see a lot of DJs and artists do live streams mm -hmm. and like a lot of uh, concert, uh, what's it called, like uh, concerts, 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 as in uh, like places that play concert. Oh my god, mm -hmm. <laughs> concert hall. Brain stops working for a little while. 
um, a lot of girls do like live streams with artists um, and ask for donations. Mm -hmm. I would say maybe go that route because we like because we already do host a lot of our works on like Instagram and Facebook and so right a lot of it is already online on in that mm -hmm. way. But then if you're putting out an exhibition, I would just live stream the shit out of it. <laughs> really, yeah. really then you yeah. kind of engage people because people are sitting at home. Um, yeah. And yeah. It's, it's interesting because when you said that, I realized that when, when places do that, um, it kind of becomes like a private tour, but for everyone. Like you can, hmm. you know, anyone who has access to the content can have a private tour. Yeah. And it's a chance also to talk more about the work in a way mm. that doesn't really happen when you just walk in and look around by yourself. Right. And uh, it's kind of cool because in, in a way, as you say, you can also, you can see people from, you can interact directly with people instead of like when you go to an exhibition opening, you're kind of in a crowd, mm -hmm. right? And you're, you mm. might blend in and you can't really talk to the artists, but now you're kind of on their phone. Yeah, asking questions, popping up. Yeah, one could find the the positive sides of it, like mm. not I, just be negative. I I do wonder though after this if this will become something that's more standard or if people will be so sick of it that they're just like we want to do everything in real life that we can now that we can be <laughs> together. What do you think? We haven't uh, experienced that like in for such a long time in the world uh, yeah. here. You know, so so even though it would uh, things would get will be well, fine again, we still know mm -hmm. that there is like a risk of something that could happen. It's just been I've just been haven't ever thought of it like it's a riskful behavior to be uh, cl close to people. Yeah. So I think that will that has that will change somehow. Even after this. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's hard to it's hard to be the first person to like break the norm because yeah. you can look you can look paranoid with this. You can well, luckily, yeah. like I don't know how it's where you are, but I think here now, like now, it's like accept <laughs> accepted. I don't. Yeah, I haven't gone out, so I don't know. <laughs> but this is this kind of uh like a social social norms can also apply to I was thinking about like it can apply to speaking out when because we're talking about institutions a lot um but you know like uh, shaking people's hand at certain days you know like now it's become acceptable and standard but um you know being the first person to say like oh I don't think we should be doing this can be really mm -hmm. hard and it's the same way in institutions when something that is just accepted as normal uh, you know, you it stands out to you, and you're like, are we really still using these words? Are we really still talking about it mm. in this way? You know, like, it can be hard to do that, but then eventually, like, things happen so quickly sometimes that you. Can, I know. You, yeah, where it's that just is like, promising though, in a way. You know, like yeah. things shift with these things now. Like things, people have changed so quickly. Mm hmm So and sometimes things can change quickly. Yeah. Sometimes very slowly. Sometimes very, very slowly. It's so weird. But it's, and it's also annoying that sometimes it's like you have to sort of wait for this, like, sort of the right um, viral Crisis. thing to happen, you know? Like, or some, some thing that's 
just like presses all the right buttons at the same time that makes change possible. Yeah. Or makes it not even possible, but mandatory almost. Yeah. I just, we just, yeah, no. <laughs> Thanks for listening to season three of Ask Adelie and Anna, which was commissioned by the National Museum in Norway.